0: Welcome to the artist statement. I'm David Malasarn. We have a special guest today because she marks a special occasion for the Granham Foundation. Here with us is Nicole Seeley, the winner of the very first Granham Foundation Prize.
1: I can't even imagine myself, you know, thinking. Oh, if I could live forever, I, I'd get bored. No, there's so much to see. Like, there's so much to see and so much to do. You can do a Seely different-
0: Seeley is the author of two collections of poetry, The Animal After Whom Other Animals Are Named, which was published in 2016 by Northwestern University Press and was the winner of the Drinking Gourd Chapbook Poetry Prize, An Ordinary Beast, published in 2017 by Echo Press, and a finalist for the Penn Open Book Award and the Hurston Wright Legacy Award. She has been the executive director of Cave Canem and is currently a visiting professor at Boston University. She also teaches at the MFA Writers' Workshop in Paris program at New York University. Among many recognitions, Seely is the recipient of the 2019 Rome Prize, a Stanley Kunitz Memorial Prize, A Poetry International Prize, and of course, the Granham Foundation Prize. In this episode, we talk about her earlier work and her winning project entitled The Ferguson Report, an Erasure. Nicole Seeley, thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me. This is a joy.
0: And congratulations for winning the first uh, Granham Foundation Prize. Oh my prize. goodness,
1: of course. <laughs> thank you for selecting uh, the work. It was such a, a surprise to be selected and of course an honor. So thank you. Thank you so much.
0: I'd like to start um, talking about your book, Ordinary Beast, actually both of your previous books, Okay. Um, by discussing your poem, Candelabra with Heads which was inspired by a Thomas Hirschhorn sculpture Mm -hmm. with the same name. Mm -hmm. One of the things I thought was so interesting about this poem was your decision to publish two different versions of it. Specifically, there was a question in your original version that you deleted when you included it in your chapbook, the animal after whom other animals are named. Mm -hmm. And then you put the question back in when you published Ordinary Beasts. I did. Can you tell us about the subject matter of the poem and why you went back and forth on that last line.
1: So, uh, as you said, this work, Kendall was with, with Heads, was inspired by a piece by Thomas Hirshhorn of the same name. And I saw this piece and I was just immediately struck by it and stood in front of the piece for several minutes. And several minutes in, you know, museum going time is a long time to stand in front of a piece. Um, But while I was doing that, I saw folks kind of glancing at it and just passing by. So they weren't having the same experience that I was having, right? They weren't engaging with the work um, like I was engaging with the work. And so I just wondered about that and the whys of that, right? Um, So I don't know how long it took me to, you know, process the piece and process it into a creative work, but eventually I did so. And I wanted to think through my engagement and others' non-engagement with the work of art, right? And so that's that's what led me, I think, to, to draft Candelabra with heads. Uh, for my chapbook, uh, The Animal After Whom Other Animals Are Named, at the advice of Editors and poets who I absolutely adore and respect, and whose work I read and teach, I took out that last line um, because they thought that it was too leading. Um, and being a first-time published poet, you know, in the form of a little book, I said, "Oh, okay. If if they say said this, it must be true, right?" Um, and to some degree. It is, but I think my intent was to lead, right? I wanted others to see what I, a black woman, saw. And so that, that was the point of the poem for me. Yet and still, I extracted that last line, that sentence, who can see this and not see lynchings, um, because I thought, you know, they knew better and they're brilliant but I know my intentions for the poem. And the poem too knows its own intentions, right? And so while I did extract the line for the chapbook for my full length, I decided wholeheartedly, like this poem is incomplete without that last line. So I decided to include that line with my full-length collection. Um, Should I read the poem?
0: Yeah, that would be great.
1: Okay. So this is Candelabra with Heads and the form is, the second half of the poem is the reverse of the first half, of, is a mirror image of it. And then it ends with essentially what, what is it? The thesis statement of, of the poem. Candelabra with Heads. Had I not brought with me my mind as it has been made, this thing, this brood of mannequins cocooned and mounted on a wooden scaffold. Might be eight infants swaddled and sleeping. Might be eight fleshy fingers on one hand. Might be a family tree with eight pictured frames. Such treaties occur in the brain. Can you see them hanging? Their shadow is a crowd stripping the tree of souvenirs. Skin shrinks and splits. The bodies weep fat the color of yolk. Can you smell them burning? Their perfume climbing as wisteria would a trellis. As wisteria would a trellis burning. Their perfume climbing fat the color of yolk. Can you smell them? Skin shrinks and splits. The bodies weep. Is a crowd stripping the tree of souvenirs. Can you see them hanging, their shadow frames? Such treaties occur in the brain. Might be a family tree with eight pictured. Might be eight fleshy fingers on one hand. Might be eight infants swaddled and sleeping and mounted on a wooden scaffold. This brood of mannequins cocooned as it has been made. This thing had I not brought with me my mind. Who can see this? and not see lynchings. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Um, and of course that last line that you just read is the one that we've been discussing, right? In, yes. So in your first chapbook, that question is not there and then you decided to include it here.
1: Yes, and, and when I'm not wanting to, I don't want to indict any of the editors because that's not their. That was my fault, that was my bad, right? That was my choosing because I had every right to say, No, you know, but I just didn't know as a first time published person, right? With this new thing, um, I just didn't know what I had, what I had right to do. Um, And so I chose to just acquiesce.
0: Do you see that as a mistake?
1: You know, initially, but in defense of Candelabra with Heads wouldn't have been written Had I not made that mistake? So that mistake led to a poem that's one of my favorites, right? That was both a joy to write and is a joy to read. And so yes and no, yes and no.
0: I'm going to ask you to read that one in a second, but um, let's talk about it. So my experience reading your book, you know, um, I read Candelabra with Heads and then it was it was... Delightful to kind of find in defense of candelabra with heads later on in the book, and to see how those two pieces were playing with each other. So it was the addition of the original version with the with the question that then inspired you to write the defense poem.
1: It was my it was my defense of of that last line. Like yeah. this is my defense of it. Right. This is why. I decided to include it in the full length, though I had extracted it from the chapbook.
0: And I love that we can get that whole story of the evolution of that too. Uh, Would you read us that poem?
1: Happy to. In defense of candelabra with heads. If you've read the candelabra with heads that appears in this collection and the one in the animal, thank you. The original, the one included here, is an example, I'm told, of a poem that can speak for itself, but loses faith in its ability to do so by ending with a thesis question. Yates said a poem should click shut like a well-made box. I don't disagree. I ask who can see this and not see lynchings, not because I don't trust you, Dear reader, for my own abilities, I ask because the imagination would have us believe much like faith, faith the original candelabra lacks in things unseen. You should know that human limbs burn like branches and branches like human limbs. Only after man began hanging man from trees, then setting him on fire, which would jump from limb to branch like a bastard species of bird, did we come to know such things. A hundred years from now, October 9, 21, 16, 8, 18 p.m. when all but the lucky are good and dead, may someone happen upon the question in question. May that lucky someone be black and so far removed from the verb lynch, that she be dumbfounded by its meaning. May she then call up her shorn's candelabra with heads. May her imagination, not her memory, run wild.
0: Thank you. And this, the the whole evolution, but also this poem, I just love that it captures all of the elements that you bring together in this book. Um, Even just beginning with a thank you, you thank you thank the readers, um, at the start of this and you get into the horrible violence of lynchings and burning flesh, but there's also this note of hope at the end. Um, can you, were you, were you consciously trying to kind of pull all those strands together or is that just kind of, is that just how you see the world?
1: You know, I... I don't know how poems are written, although I've written poems, um, part magic and part skill and part, I don't know, other world. I'm I'm not sure how I was able to to do any of this, right? Um, I know that I wanted to thank the reader, obviously, because, I mean, there's so much we could be doing otherwise, right? That someone... Um, has chosen to spend some time with this book um, and therefore with me is a privilege that I don't take for granted or lightly, right? Um, And thank you in this poem and in defense of Candelabra with Heads, if you've read the Candelabra with Heads that appears and the one in the animal, I mean, that's already two things that you've read of mine, right? I should be paying you. So I'm I'm just so thankful that folks are spending time with me. I'm just so thankful. Um, hope. Hope. I guess I guess I am hopeful. As cynical as I am, I guess I am a bit hopeful. Um, I mean, what would be the purpose of all this if we didn't have a bit of hope? You know, what would be the purpose of anything? And so I think the poem wouldn't have allowed me to write anything else, right? Hmm. There had to be a moment of perhaps, right? Like perhaps something else is possible because something else is always possible. Right. Yeah, I don't, I don't think the poem would have allowed me to write anything else but what it did. So all that to say, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. None of us do. <laughs> None of us do. Um, you know, I just try to be present and available to whatever muse comes and, you know, try to scribble it all down.
0: Your poem, the first person who will live to be 150 years old, has already been born, is a reflection on mortality and how we choose to spend our lives. You dedicate this poem to your mother, Petra Martin, and her character serves as your counterpoint in this piece. How are the different perspectives inspired by the different lives of you and your mother?
1: Um these are such great questions. Oh my goodness. Um let me get to it really quick to remind myself. So I wrote this poem in my early 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 to mid-30s, I want to say.
0: Um right around the time you were getting into poetry.
1: Well I've I've been I've been writing po- poetry since 20, early 20s. Um, okay. But I went back to school for my MFA when I was mid-30s. And my first book was published, um, the chapbook was published when I was 36 and then the full length 37. So I'm I'm a latecomer in terms of publishing, but not in terms of writing and reading poetry. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I drafted this poem in my early to mid thirties. And I was thinking about this conversation that I, was, that I had with my mom. And really this, this is the dialogue that takes place in the poem is what really took place in our conversation. Um, and I think then I had a different point of view because that was I hate to age myself, but a decade ago, yeah? And a decade ago, I felt like I, I had had enough. Like I had seen, you know, when you're young, you think you've seen and done it all, and and I haven't, and I haven't. So now, thinking about the poem, I feel like I have my mother's perspective that she had in the poem. I have that now, right? And I... I can't even imagine myself, you know, thinking, oh, if I could live forever, I'd get bored. No, there's so much to see. Like there's so much to see and so much to do. Like you can do a different thing, see a different thing every day forever, right? And so, yeah, I think it's funny reading this poem now and thinking about my younger self and my mom's younger self, and I wonder what how her perspective changed from from this poem to present
0: Hmm.
1: like I wonder if it if it if it did um I should talk to her about that that might be another poem
0: (laughs) (laughs) and your lives have changed right you were you've described that when you were younger your mom sometimes had three jobs she was a single mom um and and was working very hard to support you and maybe didn't have time to Uh, be creative or pursue non-essential things.
1: Yeah, exactly. From, yeah, I would say till about when I was about 14, when my stepfather, one of the loves of my life, entered our lives, Uh, my mom was a single parent and she had several jobs um, and did yard sales on the weekend like she just did all the things because we needed things and needed to eat and and now she's retired happily retired um you know just her time is her time there's she makes space for herself it's just she's such a different person and she's lived so many lives so i'm so interested to learn how she would feel if i initiated a similar conversation, like how different that would be. Yeah.
0: Would you read this poem to us?
1: Of course, yeah. The first person who will live to be 150 years old has already been born, for my mother. Scientists say the average human life gets three months longer every year. By this math, death will be optional, like a tie, or dessert, or suffering. My mother asks whether I'd want to live forever. I'd get bored, I tell her. But she says, there's so much to do, meaning she believes there's much she hasn't done. 30 years ago, she was the age I am now, but unlike me too industrious to think about birds disappeared by rain. If only we had more time or enough money to be kept on ice until such a time science could bring us back. Of late, my mother has begun to think life short-lived. I'm too young to convince her otherwise. The one and only occasion I was in the same room as the Mona Lisa. It was encased in glass behind what I imagine were velvet ropes. There's far less between ourselves and oblivion, skin that often defeats its very purpose. Or maybe its purpose isn't protection at all, but rather to provide a place similar to a doctor's waiting room in which to sit until our names are called. Hold your questions until the end. Mother, measure my wide open arms. We still have this much time to kill.
0: Yeah, thank you. And That last image of um, time sort of being translated into the the body, I I think that's really interesting. The beginning of the poem Um, by this math, death will be optional, like a tie or dessert or suffering. Yeah. Is suffering optional?
1: No. No. I wanted to have some contradiction there. I thought it might be interesting. Well, the poem thought it might be interesting to have. Um, And I wanted to leap into something that could contain um levity and some weight, right? So tie or dessert, and then the unexpected suffering, but also expected suffering. Right. Um, so I just wanted to make room for every emotion in that list.
0: It's interesting too, the first time I read this, I saw it as a a poem about regret or longing, but to hear you describe it now, there's also just sort of an appreciation for the beauty in the world, right? The vastness in it. So we can kind of go both ways, sort of like a backwards looking perspective or one that's more forward looking.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: So you said you started writing poetry in your 20s. Did you know from early on that you had a creative side
1: yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. I used to go into my mom's closet, go into her makeup. I used to make outfits out of scarves and, you know, model around the house and make dresses out of sheets and and things like that. Um, yeah, I knew I had creative bones in my body. I didn't know how, you know, when I was that young, how they would show themselves later in life. I've always loved writing. I've loved, I loved uh, thinking about and uh, capturing people's stories. Before I wrote poetry, I wrote interviews and reviews and short biographies of people, right? So I've always written. I wrote for um, my college newspaper when I was going to Albany State University in Albany, Georgia. Um, and I, I was an editor for, um, the Africana studies, uh, poetry journal called the Southern Griot at the university of South Florida. So I've always been, you know, doing things. Um, but I think when I started thinking about my life as, uh, as a grown person, I, I thought that writing would would be part of it. I knew that writing would be part of it, right? Um, it wasn't until when I was maybe 24, I took a course with, uh, through Cave Canem with, I think my first one was was with either Patricia Smith or Willie Perdomo, and I was just blown away mm-hmm. by what poems can do. I had read poetry, of course, but I didn't know that I could, I, I myself could write poetry, you know, like who, I didn't know anybody that was a poet before, you know, moving to New York. Nobody claimed that where I came from. Um, so I didn't know that there was possibility in that until moving to New York and studying with Patricia or was it Willie? Um, so I think then I realized I had some capacity you know, for poetry and, you know, was inspired by my teachers and encouraged by them as well. And so thought that, huh, maybe I could do this too.
0: Do you remember any of the specific lessons or comments that your first teachers made that kind of unlocked that possibility for you?
1: I remember, yes, 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 yes. So... I went to one of Patricia Smith's readings. And of course you buy the book, you buy the book. It's Patricia Smith. Of course you buy the, you buy every book of Patricia Smith's. Right. And she signed it and she wrote, use your voice. Use your voice. And I, I will never forget that instruction. I'm a, a pretty shy person, um, introvert, and I'm mostly a person who is happy to be in the background, making things happen or making things, right? Making things or making things happen. And yeah. Yeah. I, I really took, use your voice to heart and using your voice doesn't necessarily mean to be up front and center but if you feel something say something if you if you want to write something write it so that little that little direction i don't even know if she knows that 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 did that for me that little direction but that gave me so much power and encouragement and so much confidence that I didn't have or didn't know I had. And So I'm, I'm very grateful to Patricia for not only her, her in-person instruction, but the take-home stuff that she gave me, which was use your voice.
0: So among your accomplishments, you served as Programs Director and Executive Director of Cave Canem which is a literary nonprofit dedicated to supporting Black poets. You successfully grew the organization, developing a chapbook prize, building partnerships, and helping to raise funds. Why did you leave Cave Cano?
1: I know. I ask myself this daily. I love it so much. Um, because I'm a writer, too, and it didn't allow me time to um, really... Uh, Mind that part of me right um or i was unable to do both
0: was it scary to make that leap from having a job to becoming uh
1: yeah (laughs) i mean i come from a house where you don't leave something before you have another something lined up and i had a writing residency lined up which was was fine, you know, it paid residency money, um, but nothing nothing like a job. And after the res- residency was over, what was I supposed to do? And so I was scared shitless to leave Cave Cano. You know, I had been working all of my life and so I didn't know anything else. Um, so I was terrified. But we know that, that something like this deserves risk. You know, Self-care, um, uh, honor in your art, all of that deserves attention. And I owed it to myself to take that risk, right? To try my hand at living the artist's life, right? And though I didn't know then that I would survive, you know, my leaving. Um, I wish I could tell my younger self that I would, so I wouldn't be so nervous.
0: Um, I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. And you serve as a mentor for other students. Um, What do you say to them when they're contemplating the same decision?
1: Goodness. Um, Well, I want to be a responsible adult when I'm talking um, to mentees and you know, we really, we do need to take risks and we need to weigh our options. And all the cliches I tell them, right? (laughs) Weigh your options, um, take risks, uh, it'll be worth it. Um, But I think, and I was telling myself that too, but I think we've all mostly been conditioned to Um, be practical, right? So when you're encouraging someone to be impractical, um, that's a lot. That's a lot. So it's only so much um, encouragement I can do. And I say, you can do this and you'll fall on your feet and it'll be fine. And you live through it like all the cliches, but, um, but they're worth it. But they're mm-hmm. worth taking that risk um, on themselves. Their, their art is worth that. And they not only owe it to themselves to, to try, but they owe it to their fans, of which mm-hmm. I am one. So there's work to do that only they can do and the world needs it.
0: You also created the Sealy Challenge, which asked people to read one collection of poetry a day throughout the month of August. What have you gained from that personally, and what sort of feedback have you gotten from others who have participated in the challenge?
1: Yeah. Um, so as you probably know, I started it um, when I... Started at Cave Canem, or months into my tenure at Cave Canem as executive director, and I just I was not reading. Like I was not reading anything but like grant applications, and it was it was frustrating as an as an artist who who needs that kind of food to to write, right? And so I you manufactured an opportunity to do so right it was all selfishness um and to do so in community so i just really posted online i think it was twitter um i'm gonna read a book a day in august like who's with me and folks were like me and i was like yes let's do this accountability do it together um and then Uh, My poet friend, Dante Michaud, who's an amazing poet, he he called it the Sealy Challenge. Sealy Challenge. And, yeah, that was 2017. And now it's in its... This August will be its sixth year that we do it. Um, So it has its own hashtag. And I'm not, like... (laughs) I'm not a platformy person. (laughs) I'm not great at the Internet, none of that. But it has its own Twitter page, its own Instagram, and it has its own website, Sealychallenge.com. Right. And it and on the website, there's the history of the challenge. Um, There's books by folks if they don't know where to start. Um, And there's testimony from from folks who have participated in the challenge. Um, one person last year said something like, <laughs> they're so funny, it's so cool. Um, it's not so much the silly challenge as the Sealy opportunity. And I love that <laughs> because it is, it's like an opportunity to spend a day with, with poetry, spend 31 days with poetry each day, a new poet, a new book, a new chapbook, right? Um it just, uh, what we do so much stuff that's just not fun. <laughs> and for me, for, for a lot of the poets online who I'm in communication with, it's, it's a good time. And they get an opportunity to, to read the books that they've been wanting to get to, to reread the books that they've been wanting to get to right? To to read books by poets who, younger poets, you know, poets who don't look like them, right? So it's just an opportunity for exchange um, that I look forward to every August. Yeah.
0: Form is an important component of your work. Your book includes... Your book, I'm talking about Ordinary Beast, Mm -hmm. um, includes an erasure poem, sonnets, a cento, which is a collage poem that I had never heard of before. Um, And then your poem that we just discussed, Candelabra with Heads, makes use of the form um, that you're calling obverse.
1: Yes, but it comes from the palindrome. Right. Yes, palindrome, (laughs) yeah.
0: How do you take advantage of form in the creation of your work?
1: That's a great question. So sometimes, so some sometimes poems will come. You know, they will begin with an image, or an idea, or some kind of lived-in dialogue between the writer of the poem and someone else, or something overheard. Right. Um, so a poem can begin from there. But when I myself am stalled, when I don't have an image, an idea. Any dialogue, I begin with form, right? Um, I think form for me is a way into the poem, right? Um, in lieu of an idea, image, etc. So, it, I think, was it Evan Boland and. Mark Strand in making a poem that said, form is not a, l- a lock, but a key. I, mm-hmm. would, I would completely agree with that. Mm-hmm. It's not a lock, but a key.
0: You're the winner of our inaugural Grantham Foundation Prize, for which you applied with one of your current projects,
1: mm-hmm.
0: entitled The Ferguson Report, An Erasure. Can you tell us about this project?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, so the Ferguson report and erasure is an erasure of um, the Department of Justices uh, Ferguson report uh, detailing bias policing and court practices in, in Ferguson, Missouri. Um, and so I, I don't, I mean, I, one of my obsessions, obviously, is is race, um, also equity, and so of course I would be attracted to the report itself for its content. Um, when I began reading the report, however, I just started reimagining it um, with lyrical leaps and otherworldly things, and so I just. Started erasing. I just started erasing, um, and I don't know if that came from an impulse of wanting to um, erase a very real history of police violence against Black people, or it came from a, you know, a, a only a creative impulse. I I don't I don't know why, you know, the Ferguson report and erasure chose me. Um, maybe both of those things are true. Um, but I was just attracted to it and began erasing um, to create something beautiful, you know, from something that is so not.
0: The findings of the report are um, several, but among them, they uh, the Department of Justice uh, found that the Ferguson police department violated the first fourth and 14th amendments and federal law. Um, they found that the police and municipal court practices reflected and exacerbated, exacerbated existing racial bias mm-hmm. rate and racial stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Um, it found that the Ferguson police department um has sown deep mistrust between parts of the community and the police department, undermining law enforcement legitimacy among African-Americans in particular. How do you hope to add to the message that's conveyed in this report?
1: Mm. Um, add? I'm not sure. I want the report to live in people's imaginations. Right. And in their homes, I don't I don't know how many people have read it in its entirety. And so. When, if and when this is published, um, you know, the Ferguson report will be in relief of these lyrical moments that, that have been created. And so readers will have an opportunity to not only sit with this creative work, but to also sit with this reality. And so it's my hope that readers will see past and through the creative work, right? Um, Read the creative work, obviously. Um, To see the report itself and to see how much, how much damage, damage it has—not the report itself, but those um, uh, actively, uh, act, actively oppressing and uh, uh, brutalizing Black people. Um, what, like the details of that, the details of that. And the details are both minor and major, right? Um, So I I really want people to sit with this creative work and sit with this work of reality and try to engage with it um, in ways that, in in indicts, in ways that, might create some kind of hopefulness um, that, that maybe moves folks to some kind of action. Um, so yeah, so this is, is not just a work of, of creativity, but you know, a ploy to get folks to read the report itself.
0: I'm going to ask you to read some of this uh, in a moment, but first, can you describe, given everything that you're telling us, can you describe how this book will be presented and and what a page will look like?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, So the book was recently picked up by Knopf and it's due in the next months some months um, and is due out. I forget when, but we hope in, in the next maybe 18 months. I'm not sure, but I think that it will look like the re- it will be the report on the page and the report will be struck through. Um, the words I have not chosen to um, highlight will be struck through um, and then those that I that I've chosen to highlight will be darkened, right? And this is pages 22 to 29, and it was published in Poetry London. There against the eavesdrop of night, clear as a refrain, they were young, running after mercy its taillights long gone, neither interfering nor resisting, profane really. Consider the severity flight imposes on a deer, instances in which the animal out of nowhere appears to flee two or three seconds too late, but does so only because of a design oversight assigned to this particular brand of beast. We are the same, fleeing things all, evidenced for men by the closing door behind us. My point is, I decided for the second time to force myself to stand in place.
0: Thank you. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your process in working on this book? How do you approach it? What are some of the technical challenges that you're coming across? Are you sort of looking at the entire report all at once and kind of figuring out or are you starting at the beginning and moving linearly?
1: Yeah. Um, I'm reading and rereading the report constantly. I am not... Um, thinking about the work as a whole, it would be too, um, too heavy to do so. I'm looking at several pages at a time, right? And I'm finding it difficult to, to really find lyrical moments because the report is what it is, right? It's a, it's a legal document. Uh, one in which lyrical moments and leaps do not exist. And so I'm creating something out of nothing, right? And so it's not a matter of um, erasing whole words. In some cases it is, but it's sometimes erasing letters within words to create create words, right? So it's been challenging, um, but a challenge I, Am very much enjoying. It's been a challenge finding these lyrical moments. um, But they're there. I just need to keep keep looking. Because where did that deer come from in that Mm. excerpt? Right? Where did she come from?
0: You've mentioned, um, I think in one of your emails to me, and you've kind of hinted at it now, but You're not, you sound not completely sure that you're going to make it to the finish line with this.
1: You know, this, I feel like I think like that about every poem that I write, right? Like, oh my goodness, how, how is this going to happen? How is it going to come together? Um, But I just need to remind myself that it always does. You know, I'm like the advice that I give my students, I'm taking a risk on this project. And I need to understand that it'll be fine. (laughs) It'll be fine. Um, so while I, you know, joke or lightheartedly say that, Oh, how am I going to finish this? I know that I will because I have to, and not because I'm being, um, I'm being contracted to, right. But because uh, even before I was contracted to finish the work, I was working on it. So it's an impulse. It, I I have to finish this. Yeah.
0: Speaking of contracts, uh, <laughs> Ordinary Beast was published through ECHO, and the Ferguson Report is under contract with Knopf, as you said. It seems unusual these days to have poetry published by the big publishing houses can you provide some insight into how you caught the attention, how you got their attention?
1: Sure, um, a friend, <laughs> like a friend, I was a, a date um, of a friend, um, a friend slash funder, while I was working at Kabe Khanum Foundation in the capacity of programs director. Um, and we went to a party, a party in which my editor, uh, Dan Halp, my editor now, Dan Halpern was present. He was then at Echo. And of course, you know, your friends are your friends. So they're gonna say, here, you know, introduce my friend. This is an amazing poet. Uh, Everything she writes is amazing. She is amazing. You should publish her, blah, blah, blah. Um, And Dan took him up on it, said, send me something. I was lucky to have a friend Who really supported me and told um, his editor about me? And I was lucky to be in a room with said editor at the time. And so I think all of that was sheer luck, you know, right time, right place, um, which, you know, hardly ever happens.
0: Would you send us off with one final poem from Ordinary Beast?
1: Happy to. Before I do, I just want to thank you for having me. This has been a, a real pleasure. I think I told you about the difficulties of my day, and so yeah. it's been cool to chat about poems. And I'm also thankful to be reminded of all the people who have brought me to this point, um, including Dan, and including uh, Patricia and Willie, and those editors of my chat book, like everyone who had a hand in this, and the readers and... Um, It's just so lucky to, to live and do what I love to do. And I'm excited about that and I'm thankful for it and I don't take it for granted. So, object permanence for John. We wake as if surprised the other is still there each petting the sheet to be sure. How have we managed our way to this bed? Beholden to heat like dawn indebted to light. Though we're not so self-important as to think everything has led to this, everything has led to this. There's a name for the animal love makes of us. Named, I think, like rain or the sound it makes. You are the animal after whom other animals are named. Until there's none left to laugh, days will start with the same startle and end with caterpillars gorged on milkweed. Oh, how we entertain the angels with our brief animation. Oh, how I'll miss you when we're dead.
0: Nicole Seeley, thank you very much for being here today.
1: Thank you very much.
0: If you enjoyed this episode of The Artist Statement, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. We thank you for listening. Music for The Artist Statement was produced by Joe Rivers. Artwork by Ayumi Takahashi. The artist statement is brought to you by the Granum Foundation, which strives to identify and invest in the next generation of pathbreaking writers. Visit us at granumfoundation.org. G-R-A-N-U-M Foundation.org.